your brother's hungry? Don't you know your sister's lonely? Don't you know there's babies crying? Don't you know your brother's dying? Greetings. I'm Dr. Anthony Smith of Alashe Center for Enrichment, and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy, where we endeavor to challenge you to think critically about your mental health and overall wellness. Our goal is to inspire you to align your actions and values so that you might live your life fully 86,400 seconds every single day. We do this in part by asking questions and raising issues that you may not have previously considered. Ultimately, we encourage you to do those things that help you to live your best life consistently, always working towards balance. Greetings and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy. We are working to help you live your life fully, 86,400 seconds every single day. We're starting off a new year here, 2021, our first podcast of 2021. And today I have a special, special, special guest. She is a speech pathologist, an educator, a children's author, an auntie extraordinaire, and my widow sister, Miss Diarta Smith. Hey, Dee Dee. Hey, Big Water. <laughs> How are you doing today? Oh, it's a marvelous Monday, so I'm doing exceptionally well. And how are you today? Hey, it's a good day in the neighborhood. Anytime I can be living my life fully, these 86,400 seconds, I'm happy. Say so that that's what I'm doing. People in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've been doing this podcast for a while, and we were talking, and it occurred to me, my sister is a speech pathologist, and... Often when I'm doing work with people, um, that is an area that comes up where we need to make referrals for. And so I thought, man, this is, I'm missing an opportunity here. It's a uh, broad field that people can get some information on who may have children that can use this, utilize these services. And so that people can know how to advocate for their um, children. Um, and then you also work with populations that uh, with children who are autistic and who have behavioral issues and things of this nature. So I just thought that it would be great to have you come aboard and share some of your knowledge so that people can benefit from the things that you have to offer. So um, thanks for joining us. And um, why don't you, um, to, to begin with, tell us a little bit about why you even decided to do what it is that you're doing. So, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me to be your first guest of 2021. I am elated. Here's your baby sister. <laughs> um, so why I got into uh, speech language pathology is actually pretty interesting. I was working as a candy striper at a hospital and this volunteer position, they you know, gave us options to be in different places. And I wasn't quite sure, but I was pretty versatile. And I told them wherever they wanted to place me, I would go. Well, as it would happen, they had me to work in the uh, office with a speech language pathologist. So I, you know, I'm watching her interact with people, not, you know, 
full on sessions, but I was helping her organize files and she would give me some information about what she does. And I thought it was pretty interesting to be able to sit in and work with people who needed help communicating. Um, to me, communication has always been so high on my list of, um, pri you know, great things, priorities, and, and things that are very important for people to be able to utilize as, as a skill set. So that was that was right down my alley. And that's, that's how one, you know, I kind of got plugged in that way. That was one of the first ways that I got plugged in and introduced to speech language pathology as a career. So it was a hospital setting. I didn't know whether or not I wanted to be in a hospital setting because I was told that there were other settings where you could um, provide services, but that was my first introduction. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you went to college knowing that that's what you wanted to do? Actually, no, it was an interest. It sparked an interest, but I always grew up. So because I wear glasses, and you know that, and I've worn glasses since the third grade, I always grew up having such a fascination with the field of ophthalmology. So it was like once I was, you know, ophthalmology was like throughout my lifetime of wearing glasses. I'm like, yes, this is this is such a high interest for me. And then when I had that opportunity to be a volunteer at the hospital, I was introduced to speech language pathology. I'm like, wow, this is this is really great. But I hadn't settled on anything. But I knew that ophthalmology was kind of at my forefront. And I thought about that my whole life. But um. When I went to school, when I went to college, I went to University of Florida, and um, I found out that that ophthalmology wasn't really what I wanted to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. The real world kind of let me know pretty quickly that, yes, yeah, sis, um, you might want to try something different. And uh, that's when I went, my, you know, I kind of scaled back and thought about, you know what, I remember this high interest that I had. And, and so I sought that avenue um, to pursue. It wasn't that I had to jump through other hoops or find other interests. It was literally, I know I'm not going to be an ophthalmologist. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is something that I really had an interest in. Let's go ahead and pursue that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you got into it. And then how did you evolve from that point to actually um, working in the field? So, um, I graduated with my degree in communication processes and disorders. There's a long story behind that. We don't have time today on this podcast for that. Um, I went on a different route and I ended up going into public health. I pursued a master's degree in public health and um, I started working in the school system uh, teaching high school. I taught 10th grade students because um, I had a degree in a master's degree in public health and so I taught health life management skills and then they moved me down to ninth grade because they're like you're doing so great with the 10th graders we're just going to go ahead and let you work with the ninth grade students and I'm like yo that's not a promotion <laughs> I can help you figure out better ways to give me promotions or awards but going from 10th grade to ninth grade is not a promotion right. so um once I got into uh, my ninth grade, we're working with the ninth grade students. That's when I went back to school and I got my master's degree in speech pathology. Um, and so from there, I did a lateral transfer over once I had finished with the degree and became a speech language pathologist in the school system, providing services for um, initially it was high school and some elementary school students. 
that transitioned into just elementary school and then further transitioned into just preschool students. Mm, okay. So, so you like what you do um, a lot. Uh, why? Well, one of the things that is uh, very passionate for me is helping, especially children, because I do believe in uh, creating those building blocks and those foundational skill sets for people to be able to grow on. But I'm very passionate about children and I'm passionate about them being able to express themselves, about them being able to communicate, to share their feelings, to talk about things that interest them. Um, and when children don't have an avenue or a way to do that in a fluid manner, you know, that's when my antenna rises up and I'm like, you know, Ms. D to the rescue. I'm here to help you to be able to express your thoughts, express your views, whether those views are, you know, simplistic in terms of wanting to make requests for things or whether they're, you know, hardline like, hey, I need to protest about this because this is not what I want. I want to refuse what you're offering me. Um, and at the end of, of the day, one of the um, really passionate things for me about this is having children be able to advocate for themselves. Um, and I, I think a lot of our students who have um, developmental delays, that's where there's a lag. They're not really um, developing a skill set to advocate for what it is that they want to happen in the educational arena and also um, in their social interactions with their families and with their peers. So well, it's not, yeah, it's not only the children that can't advocate for themselves, the parents often don't understand the necessity of advocating for themselves uh, for the, or for their children. I would agree mm -hmm. to some degree. There are some parents who are um, better at advocating sure. for right. the supports and the needs of their children. And then there are a lot of parents who who need support. Uh, in that area to be able to know what, to be able to articulate what it is their child is lacking, how they can be supported and what those tools and services are that, that would benefit them within that educational arena. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's take it from the, from the beginning to the, all the way through the process. How is a, does a student get identified as needing services from you? Okay. So be, and I'm going to speak specifically to the population that I'm working with right now. Mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a different process for students once, they, once they're in school and they're identified, there's, that's a different process. But for preschool students that I work with currently, they're identified either through um, an early steps program, which is uh, from birth to three. This is for children who maybe have um, we're in a hospital setting and the hospital has identified that there are some concerns possibly that may be arising. So they're referred out to early steps to make sure that they try to counter any difficulties that they might have early on with their overall development communication being a part of that. Um, so from early steps, uh, early steps is one avenue and um, fiddlers, which is the child find program is another avenue. And this is for children who are above the age of three from three to five years old. If a parent, if a teacher or provider has concerns about a child, that parent can take that child to one of the Fiddler's sites and they will conduct a full assessment of that child. They usually start with a screener, find out um, any background concerns, and then uh, they'll do a developmental assessment. And that may include 
a speech and language assessment as well to find out if there are areas that are lacking where they can be supported. Once that testing is done, whether it's coming from early steps or fiddlers, they feed into our preschool program and we can provide those continuing services for those children in one of our preschool programs. So what are the things that would give a parent concern to begin? So I'm sitting at home and I got a, a two-year-old, three-year-old, and what is going to, what is it that's going to make me say, I think my child needs speech services. Are they not speaking enough words or are they, are they pointing? What are the things, what are the indicators, the markers that one should be um, looking out for in this, in that context? Yeah, so there are some warning signs and some flags that parents uh, should be able to note when they're looking at their child. And I will say this, um, and, and hopefully our parents are, are being better educated and, and are really kind of taking the time to hone in because observation of your child is key. Mm, okay. There are a lot of parents that will, will come in and I'll say, you know, what are your concerns? What is it that the child isn't or is doing? And it's, it, it grips my heart when a parent can't say what it is that the child is or isn't doing in terms of, is the child um, establishing eye contact with you, right? Is the child pointing to things? Are they using gestures to communicate a message? Is the child following directions, simple directions? If you say, um, you know, pick up your shoes or give me the cup, are they following simple directions? Are they babbling? Are they making certain sounds? Like, cause so babbling takes on a, um, it takes on a nature of itself. It starts out with just that reduplicated kind of, you know, babbling that variegated then reduplicated, you know, kind of goes back and forth. And then they start to form some true words and, you know, also if the child isn't repeating, if they're not trying to repeat and trying to imitate words and sounds that are modeled for them. And I, and I often tell parents, you know, start with some environmental sounds and some, you know, if we're looking at animals, some animal sounds, are they trying to put their lips together and say moo? When you say moo, are they trying to look at what you're doing and imitate the sounds that you're making? You know, those are, those are some of the just global things that we look at in terms of, you know, is this child presenting, you know, with some possible concerns? Also, you know, once a child is um, up to from a year old to a year and a half old, they should be starting to say some words. We should, we should hear some words starting to emerge. By the time a child is two, there is a huge explosion of vocabulary that erupts because all this time they've been given language. They've been fed um, uh, language skills auditorily, constantly. So that receptive language is being built up. So by the time that they're two, especially going into three, that expressive vocabulary just starts to uh, really flow. And um, if they're not repeating, if they're not saying any words to go along with those gestures, then certainly that's um, an indicator that they may want to see a professional, see a speech language pathologist to find out if they need to follow up um, with those concerns. Is it the case that parents who don't speak to their kids often, um, that that limits what you're saying in terms of being able to hear a lot of different languages. And you think about 
children who have a higher vocabulary. Uh, for instance, um, children whose parents may be highly college educated or uh, children who are only children and whose parents talk to them um, like they're an adult. And you see those kids often have a better command of vocabulary. Are there, do you see that being the case that um, the way the parents speak or don't speak to the child impacts what it is you're talking about right now? Well, to your point, there was a study done by Hart and Risley. And in that research, what they looked at is um, the amount of times, and I'm, I'm, I don't remember the study right off the top of my head verbatim, but I know they looked at um, the educational background of the parents. They looked to see how often the parents spoke with the child, whether or not they carried on the conversation for more conversational exchanges. And they found that um, um, the parents who provided a lot more vocabulary and a lot more exposure to, the, to their children, those children ended up with a lot more um, a lot more language, a lot more vocabulary. The voca their vocabularies were a lot more robust. Um, and I find that anecdotally, and there are other studies that will, will speak to that, where if we immerse children in language, we'll help, we're helping them to hear the nuances, the super segmentals. We're helping them to hear the vocabularies. We're helping, we're building their language as we interact with them. One of the things that I've seen with a lot of parents is that more and more, I'm finding parents aren't really communicating with their children. They're talking to or at them, mm -hmm. but they're not communicating with them. So I'll, I'll have a number of parents that will say, well, I told them to do this. And I said for them, do that. And so they're giving them directives, but they're not really having conversation. Mm -hmm. So me providing you with some information about, and again, finding what's meaningful for the child, because just because you want to talk about, you know, uh, this book over here, it doesn't mean that child has an interest. So if a child isn't, let's say um, I have some parents that'll say, uh, oh, they, you know, I tried to read them a story about, you know, a bear on the farm, but the child has a high interest in vehicles. They will find what's interesting for the child and then use that to stimulate that back and forth conversation and really kind of keep it going and provide some of that um, um, matching more, you know, so they say something and you give them a little bit more provide a little bit more and, and continue to give them uh, the language that they need in order to keep that converse, those conversations going. So, you know, back to my original point, a lot of times I'll find parents that are talk at or to their children, but not really with their children. And those conversational exchanges are so important, meaningful. You know, how do we keep this topic going? How do we share more information? How do I give you more language to support the topic that we're talking about? Mm -hmm. All of that is, is very important when it comes to communication. And so as you're working with the child, you're also working with the parent, I take it, because you have to educate the parent on what they need to be doing to bring out some of these things you're, you're discussing. Absolutely. Um, most of what, and, and for, for early intervention, the, the coaching model is a, is a very good model to follow. And most, many, I won't say most, many people who work with early in, in children in early intervention settings will use a coach 
model because you want to try to facilitate language in the child's natural environment. The child's natural environment when they're, you know, a toddler, an infant, um, when they're preschool age is home. You know, they're home, they're playing, they're in, they're, they're learning um, things about the house. They're learning, you know, household terminology. They're learning clothing terminology, their body. Um, they're learning about food. They're learning about, they're learning about all of those things in that natural environment. So that coaching model works really well when we can provide the parent with the opportunity to say, let's take one segment of your day, let's break that down and find out how we can embed some communication opportunities into what you're doing and build that vocabulary and that language around that interaction that's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the coach, and, and we, I use that model a lot, you know, cause we provide services virtually, you know, now with COVID. Um, some of our students are in a face-to-face -face model and then some of our students are um, uh, MSO or school online, my school online. So, and providing therapy uh, in a telehealth format for preschool students is a bit challenging, especially mm -hmm. when the child has developmental delays. So it helps me to help the parent to see what, the, what are the strategies that I'm using and then you take those and you generalize them to your home environment. Like we don't have magic wands. What we use is we use strategies to support building communication. And those strategies can be shared out and should be shared out with parents so that they also know how to assist their child with, um, with communicating what their wants and needs are. Mm -hmm. And that's similar to what I do in terms of working with parents um, in the psychology practice is like, um, you can't just drop your child off and expect, like you said, to wave a magic wand. There are things that need to be done in the home in a consistent way to create, to undo patterns that haven't been working and create patterns that are more effective and that will work moving forward. So um, I'm glad to hear that that is, is, is a part of what you're doing with um, the family unit, um, I should say. Not, you know, however that's comprised, whoever are the caregivers, the primary caregivers of the child. Um, what about, will, go ahead. I will say one of the one of the positive things that I've noted in providing uh, telehealth services is I've seen more fathers mm. be involved in the therapy that's being provided with their children. And I had one father say to me, you know, teach me, teach me how to do that with my, because when the child came in, we established, the child and I established a rapport pretty quickly. Um, usually for, for preschool students, especially in the telehealth model, it's a little difficult. It, you know, it can be pretty daunting sometimes to really have that child want to engage and interact because the interaction and the rapport happened so quickly. The father was like, wow, like I wasn't ready for that. Um, <laughs> teach me how to do that. Like I want to be able to do that. And as we talked and, and you know, having the conversation with him made me reflect on another parent group that I was working with a couple years ago. And I asked the parents, you know, when you're when your child plays, do you get down on the floor and play with them? Like, how do you play with your child? Does, oh no, but they they play with their things. Like, but do you play with them? Are you down on the floor at their level, at eye level? Are you playing with them? Are you looking up into their eyes and saying, I got a car too. Mm, look at this. My car is going to go fast. You know, how, how are you engaging that child so that they want to communicate, right? Because communication 
a lot of it has with motivation. Like if somebody walked up to me right now and started talking about um, doing an oil change in the car, uh, yeah, I mean, thank you. I don't really want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's not high. Motiv- that's not highly motivating for me, you know. But if you walk up to me and start talking about a chicken sandwich from Chick Fil A <laughs> or some Cold Stone ice cream, bingo. You've got my attention right away. So hey, motivate- we're not giving out any free advertising here. <laughs> <laughs> I could be a spokesperson, but um, y'all contact me now if you want a spokesperson. But um, I, yeah, having some, having a topic or having activities that are meaningful and motivating, people don't understand sometimes just how necessary that is. Like that's a huge component. Um, of what's needed to build a foundation for how to provide services and how to, to delegate activities for, for carrying out any types of um, intervention and coaching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Very, very good. Um, what about the next age group? We t- kind of talked a little bit about, so, and I want to say too, per your example with the father, and your ability to establish rapport. And I've seen this happen. I think you speak the language of child, right? Everybody doesn't speak child. <laughs> it's, a, it's a language unto, a, in, in, unto itself. And okay. <laughs> you know how to make it, make it plain, even over a screen. There's something about the way you connect and, and speak that language um, that allows for rapport to be established in a quick way. And, I, and I, I do believe it's possible to teach people that. Apparently you're doing that. Um, but um, I also think part of it is just personality-wise. Um, are all people who are doing what you do, other speech pathologists, are they as effective and are they able to establish rapport in similar manners? Is that something you learn? Or is it just your awesomeness. <laughs> Thank you for that compliment. I appreciate that. Um, well, so, you know, people can work with different populations. There are some people who find their niche among the preschool population. There are some who find their niche working with, you know, school age populations. There are some who want to work with adults. And then there are some who want to work with the geriatric population. So, you know, there are needs that span birth to, you know, end of life where people can hone, you know, utilize skill set to support that particular population. Um, so the so answer is no, everybody can't speak child. <laughs> <laughs> Do not put words in my mouth. <laughs> I did not say that. Okay. So let's move to the next age group, the, the, the uh, school age group. Um, speak about some of the issues that, that are evident there and how those are dealt with. Okay, when you say issues that are evident there. So um, what are the challenges that you see with kids that are out of the infant age and are more in the school age area? What are the, what are the presenting concerns? What are the areas that stand out as uh, issues that a child would be referred to you at that age. And I'm assuming that at that age, they've been missed during the uh, early childhood um, 
period? It's possible because um, preschool is voluntary, right? So it's not mandatory. So parents don't have to send their kids, their children to school in that preschool age. If they do, that's an opportunity for that teacher to catch or to find or discover if there are any concerns that may arise. Mm -hmm. um, some students uh, may enter from um, other places where um, they may not have been identified correctly in those places. And so they, they you know, enter into a school setting that is looking a little bit more closely at, you know, at that child and, and what their academic performance is like and what those variables are that may be presenting to why they're not having success. Some of the um, concerns that, I, that I've encountered are students who um, are disfluent, you know, because as, uh, as they're required to do more oral reports or anything like that, they've got to speak more and for some students, that disfluency may onset earlier than it may present at other ages. Okay, um, now, now, now hold on. I need you to not speak um, your, your uh, speech pathology language. Break it down for the um, mere mortals out here who don't know what disfluent is. What are you talking about there? So disfluent speech is speech that is not smooth and coordinated. It's um, mm. speech that has a break in the flow um, of ideas that are being presented. For a person can have interjections, like I just said, um, excessive interjections could be a form of disfluent speech. When a person has a block, you know, they're trying to get that sound out, but it's just not coming. That could be a form of disfluent speech. If a person is repeating sounds in a word or uh, part of a word or a whole word that could be disfluent speech. So if they're saying, I, 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 I want to go to the store. Um, and they, and of course they have that break in that fluid speech. It's not coming smooth. Then mm. that might be who presents with a concern, especially if it's a severe uh, concern. So there are assessments that are done, like the, they use the SSI, they use other types of assessments that look at the conversational flow of that person to find out what is the frequency with which they produce these disfluencies and what types of disfluencies those are so that they can get a characteristic of whether or not this is a mild concern, a moderate concern, or a severe concern, or even a okay. profound. Okay, that makes sense. So what about stuttering? How would stuttering fit into that? Stuttering is disfluent speech. Okay, great. Yeah. So that's a, a, fan, uh, a more advanced way of saying. Okay. All right. So if a parent noticed that their child was stuttering, they would make a referral or they would, or even the teacher would notice that and then would make a referral for speech services? Well, it could be one or the other. So a parent has the right, and this is in our school district. So I can't speak to everybody's because I don't know what their procedures are, but the parent has a right to request an assessment mm -hmm. if they feel like there's a concern with their child. Um, the teachers can also initiate that process. And what would happen is the child will go through um, what is called the RTI process. So they would look to see, um, the teacher would have to submit a request for um, 
requests for uh, a, a request. They would submit a request that would outline what the concerns are and that will go to an RTI team who would look at the data. Is the child performing well on their assessments? How are they doing overall in class? Um, what is What are their social interactions like? Or wherever the breakdowns are, all of that information would be generated and that team would determine whether or not they needed to um, place this child on these particular recommendations, let them do that for a certain amount of time to see whether or not these strategies and support would assist the child as opposed to going straight to let's evaluate them and place them in special education. Mm -hmm. The goal is not to over refer, but to find out if there are strategies and supports that can help the child that can be maintained prior to getting to like that tier three, you know, assessment process. Okay. So one would just be, you know, your general tier two is, you know, you're looking at what strategies and supports could be provided. And then if they're not successful, then they will go to a, a referral. Articulation and stuttering are typically two that don't necessarily need to go through an RTI process, but language concerns would need to go through an RTI process because there are some interventions that can be provided in the classroom that would eliminate the need for that tier three type of services if they're successful. Okay. So data is collected throughout this whole process in order to determine what's successful and what needs to be. Right. And that's the testing process. And if someone is referred, they, they go through a battery of testing to um, come up with a diagnosis or, or a prognosis. Right. Yeah, for what, how you're going to work with that person. Correct. So what about the um, older population moving into high school, then adults even? Um, what do the speech concerns look like there? With high school students, a lot of it has to do with language, just like the school age population. And a lot of it centers around being able to access the academic language mm -hmm. of their school setting. So um, are there reading concerns? Um, speech pathologists work uh, in conjunction with uh, the reading coaches and with the teachers to address any kind of reading concerns. So earlier on, you're looking at the child uh, being able to decode you know, phonological awareness, phonetics, um, vocabulary okay. building, comprehension, all of those building blocks. Um, later on, for some students, and I remember in the ninth grade, even well, not in the ninth grade, when, when I was working with ninth grade students, there were still uh, exhibited concerns because, you know, there are some students who are older students who still have a reading level that it's, that is not where their expected age would be. Mm -hmm. So then we have to scaffold back and target those skills to help to bring them up to a higher level than, than where they currently are. So reading is, is a huge area that's targeted in terms of comprehension, vocabulary building, and um, the knowledge of certain vocabulary forms. So that's semantics, the syntactical part, the writing and composition are all areas that are um, addressed. Okay. And, and that listening to you um, earlier, it dawned on me, I, I never really spent a lot of time thinking about um, adults and folks who are geriatric that may need services. But I guess that when somebody has a stroke or if they're in an um, accident where they may have um, a brain injury or something and their speech has been impaired in that way, then they would need services at that point. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So there are there are um, 
there are different reasons why a person might need the support of a speech pathologist in their adult life. Um, there are still people who would like to receive services to correct um, or to have less problematic disfluency. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's still an area of population. Mm -hmm. um, if, if someone has had a head injury or a stroke or something like that, which um, they would end up possibly with like um, a, a type of aphasia maybe, or anything like that, where the speech center is disrupted, then they may need the support of a speech pathologist. Um, people who have problems swallowing, like that's a whole another area, um, dysphagia where, and that can be infant to adult, where a person can have trouble with their swallowing for different reasons. There are some people who are born with um, very soft um, esophageal tubes. And so they, they need support. Um, they might have a stenosis. They may have, they may, you know, a narrowing of that uh, esophageal area. There may be some people who had to be um, intubated. And as a result, now they're, you know, having some difficulty with swallowing correctly. So it, there are any number of reasons um, why a person may need to be seen by a speech pathologist for swallowing. There's also the area of voice. Um, there are speech pathologists that deal with people that help to treat, I won't say deal with, but there are speech pathologists that work with people who have a hard time with um, sounding clear, like they're, uh, they sound raspy or they sound hoarse or they sound harsh when they speak. Um, and so along with the ENT, the support of the ENT, a person who provides those services would help them to have more functional sounding, um, clear sounding mm. speech. Okay. So what do you do for somebody that has difficulty swallowing? Are there exercises you do to help them with that? There are exercises. I have not worked with that population, so I do want to put that disclaimer there. Okay. Um, but there are exercises that that person who's receiving treatment would be um, provided with so that they could develop a safe swallow. There's also a modification of the consistency of their food. So if somebody is not having a safe swallow, let's say um, they're aspirating, meaning liquid or food is going down into their trachea, into their airways, um, putting them at risk. Um, for, for, you know, yeah, putting them at risk, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they would, they could have their food consistency modified. So uh, they would be possibly put on a mechanical soft type of diet, or maybe a puree, or something that's safer for them to swallow so that um, um, they won't aspirate the food. Mm -hmm. And that's done, uh, well, the speech pathologist would conduct like a, a swallow study, a modified barium swallow study where they would go under radiology. And it's not done all the time, but at times they would go under um, and find out how was the person swallowing and is the food getting trapped or where, you know, mm -hmm. there may be aspiration of penetration that's taking place. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so what about people who have a lisp? Do you help with those? Issues. Yes, lisps can be targeted in therapy. That's that falls under 
articulation or speech therapy. Mm -hmm. And that's when the person, the fricative sound, that S, which is um, produced behind the teeth at the top, that alveolar ridge. And there's a small space there that you actually have the air to flow out of. A person who's a lisper, that tongue is kind of coming forward. So the therapy would target really getting that tongue in a different position so that they can more clearly articulate that sound. Mm -hmm. And that, that is an area that can be targeted. But there are a number of people who haven't targeted their lisp and they're quite successful. So there are some people who advocate for targeting and targeting early on. And then there are some people who in the grand scheme of things, everything else is okay. They feel like, ah, oh, it's not major. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, that's point of view. I do treat when a child is presenting with a lisp because lisps don't just cure on their own. You have to um, provide some support so the child or the person knows how to redirect their, their placement. Is it is it even I'm just thinking about this as I'm as I was asking the question, is it judgmental to think that a lisp needs to be cured to begin with? I mean, could it just be their communication style and way of um, speaking? Like even I think about some people say certain words a certain way, like um, um, the K uh, word um, scrimp, right? <laughs> Some people say scrimp as opposed <laughs> Yeah, or they might say um, there, there, there are certain words that, um, particularly in our culture, I notice that people say that aren't the correct phonetic way of saying it, but it's communicating, they're communicating um, an idea or a concept. Um, what are your thoughts about that? So are you speaking about African-American vernacular in particular, when you mentioned yeah, it, yeah, that's what it might, yeah. Mm -hmm. So AAVE is not a, it's not an impairment. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion that has been happening about the over-referral of children who speak AAVE as um, being impaired, being somehow impaired. Uh, there are, again, there are different thoughts. There are some who feel like, you know what, we don't need to be targeting this. This is not something that is uh, or should be a concern. Children, um, AAV is, is just as um, acceptable or should be just as acceptable as your Jamaican Patois, as your Gullah, as any, any other dialect, mm -hmm. right? And then there are some that are like, well, you know, we have to we have to um, provide children with the ability to code switch and be able to use standard American English in their academic settings. And if they're not doing that, they're gonna be at a disadvantage. So they need to be placed in a setting that provides them with the support to be able to use those forms that they need in their academic setting. So I'm not, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm saying that these are thoughts that are there. What is standard American English? Because you can go to Boston and listen to some of the folks talk up there, or you can go to Georgia in some of the country places and hear people's playing, or you could, like different places in the country, um, people have different takes on 
standard American English, and I guess it's standard American English. So we can go to England, and that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, they, they see us Americans as bastardizing the, the English language. So yeah. a lot of cultural values seem to be um, a part of that conversation there. And geographically, you will hear different um, accents and uh, dialects that will emerge based on where that person is located. So yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. And there's been a lot of pushback in the field, um, especially um, by African-American professionals in particular who feel like, you know, um, we need to recognize the value in the communication process itself and not place one um, way of speaking as the model for everybody. Yeah, like yeah. the only correct way of speaking. And if you don't subscribe to this, then everything else is secondary, tertiary, tertiary and on down. Mm -hmm. So there, there definitely has been a lot of pushbacks. Um, a lot of linguists in the field, I'm not a linguist. A lot of linguists in the field have definitely done some research and, and certainly have promoted a lot of research to speak to that point mm -hmm. yeah that's, i would definitely be on the on the side of, of that because i think there's too much of making anything that isn't um white um the uh standard of whether it's beauty whether it's intelligence uh whether it's speech so i think that um, that is definitely something that um, i would be coming down <laughs> hard on and saying you know, let's, let's lift this up because ultimately the goal of communication communication is to convey a point and if the folks who are conveying the point and interestingly enough you know a lot of these a lot of the aave or the um the cultural idioms get into our national dialogue folks always trying to co-opt <laughs> the way we speak <laughs> like um whether it's something as simple as, um, um, oh, that's lit, you know. I heard some <laughs> some some folks saying, oh, that's lit. We, that's not who started saying that, right? And so it's it's different sayings like that that people co-opt for the you know when it's convenient, but then look down on when it's not. Um, would be my take on it. So. You don't have any thoughts about that, I guess. <laughs> no, there's a lot of cultural misappropriation. <laughs> there's a lot um, that happens and um, I don't wanna go down a rabbit hole. So I agree with you that um, when it's convenient, you know, AAVE is convenient when it's convenient. Yeah, I'll keep you out of those conversations, um, but I'm gonna say it because I, I can. No. Um, Let's talk about autism and the impact autism has on the work that you do. Okay. Kids, kids who are autistic. So children who have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, once I, I noticed the way you said that. I, I should have said it that way as well. Um, so say a little bit about why you said it that way. Well, and there's so I'm going to present the other view also, but I like to I like to use the language that doesn't make the disability be the child. Right. 
that represents the child and that also indicates that there are concerns. So right. I, I tend to like to phrase situation, you know, my wording that way. Um, but there's another group that, and the and these, of course, these are not your younger school age, but these, these are older who feel like, no, I want to be called autistic. And so just the acceptance of the disorder that they've been diagnosis having has, has risen among this population, this segment of, of the population. And they're like, no, why are we, we're not going through all of that? I'm autistic. Call me autistic. And I'm like, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, however, I feel more comfortable describing a person as, you know, they are yeah. from their disability. Right. right. And I, and I do the same thing in psychology. A person is diagnosed with depression, not as opposed to, uh, you know, is depressed or is schizophrenic. Is a person diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, is the way I um, would do that. So, yeah, I appreciate you um, making that slight correction. Uh, but so now dig into what that work looks like with that population. So I've worked with um, school-aged children who um, have been diagnosed with autism and the area, so we know, well, maybe your listeners don't know, but with autism, there are three um, areas that we tend to look at and one of them is communication, one of them is social interactions or the social, and then the third is behaviors, any types of um, repetitive or any um, atypical types of behaviors that the child may present with in a repetitive format. So along the, the lines of communication in particular, because our students are in a school setting, they're expected to have and carry out social interactions. So those two invariably go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. uh, and so with the students, what I tend to support for my younger students, it's getting them to understand the power of communication and knowing what the vocabulary and the language is that they can use in different settings and, and with different people. Uh, so a lot of awareness, a lot of uh, learning and understanding about language or some of the students that I support who are on the spectrum. Um, it's providing them with um, assistive technology, uh, AAC, augmentative or alternative communication. And what that is, is any type of support, be it um, a note tech, which might be a communication board or pictures, um, even uh, sign language to mid tech, to low tech, mid tech, and then high tech. So devices and equipment that they can use that generate verbal responses. Mm -hmm. So information is recorded onto these devices and then the child or the person can use these to convey their messages. Typically, a lot of our AAC users are those who have minimal to no oral language skills. Mm -hmm. And um, But visual supports, we do... Uh, provide those across the board for all of our students, but especially for those students who are nonverbal or minimally verbal, so that they can see that in, 
as opposed to tantruming or throwing themselves on the floor, you can point to some pictures and get your message across. It's a higher way of communicating. I don't want to say higher as in, you know, better. better. It's a a more um, acceptable way of communicating as opposed to just tantruming all the time or taking something and chucking it across the room. So um, some of it is shaping atypical or um, variant behavior to more acceptable ways to express oneself in different environments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Some of it has to do with social interactions. How do I respond in social situations? How do I initiate a conversation with a peer? How do I initiate play with a peer? How do I make a request for materials if I've been overlooked? If, If my teacher has given everybody, you know, materials they need to complete an assignment, but they forgot about me, what would the typical child do? Uh, Teacher, you know, miss so-and-so, I need a paper or I need a pencil. You know, how do you communicate that you need the same things that other people need? How do you ask for help that you need assistance? I need assistance with, you know, um, uh, whatever the case might be, accessing this program or whatever. How do you communicate those needs. So being able to show them the uh, different ranges of communication functions, which are the reasons why we communicate and and using those across different environments with different people within the academic setting. Okay, great, great. That's good work there. So as we move into uh, wrapping up here, I want to end on a light note and I want to have you talk a little bit about um, another part of the work that you do, which is your writing of books, in particular the children's books that you, books that you have written to, um, I guess, kind of solve some of the problems that you see in terms of speech. So um, talk a little bit about that. Okay. So I became a children's book author because, um, well, there's a story, there's a backstory behind that. Um, I wasn't well, I'm not going to go into the backstory right now. That's that's another episode. But one of the uh, one of the things I wanted to target is I wanted to target um, African American boys, and the reason why is because when I did research, well, actually, I was already reading books to children anyway, and most of the children's books that you'll lay hand on have either animals as characters or they have European characters. There weren't that many books at the time that showed African-American boys as characters. And so I understand how important representation is. And I don't think a lot of my parents or the students understood the importance of representation, but they felt the effects of not being represented. Mm -hmm. I'll say it like that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to contribute to the body of literature that showed African-American boys in a positive light. Mm -hmm. Not just, you know, Michael was bad, you know, look what Michael did. No, they get that anyway. (laughs) Teachers come in looking for, you know, our Black students to be the ones that are the, the, the trouble students, right? Mm-hmm. They already look for that. I wanted these little black boys, these little black girls, these little white boys and these little white girls 
to see little black boys being portrayed in a positive light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of the books um, have a a problem solving aspect in it um, that I layered in. It's not overt. It's not right there. What should he do now? But it's layered in the storyline because I think it's important that our children learn how to solve problems early on. They learn, what are the options? What what options do I have? Okay, I want somebody. So one of my books is called, Will You Read With Me? I really wanted to show the the family dynamic of getting together and enjoying something as pleasurable as Mm. reading a good book together. What Mm -hmm. great social interaction, you know, what great communication and connection that is, right? Um, And so this little boy wants somebody to read with him, but everybody's busy. How often does that happen? Mm -hmm. All the time. Adults are always busy doing something. What are my options? What do I do when everybody's busy? I want somebody to help me or I want somebody to do something with me, right? So he makes a good choice and then it ends up everybody's all together. So um, that's just one example, but I really wanted to uh, always be able to have the conversation with my books about the main character, these boys making good choices about what they're going to do about the situations that they were involved in. Okay, okay. And so how many books have you actually done? I've written six books and I also have a workbook that goes along with four of the stories. So and I created a workbook because I wanted the children to have a way to reflect on the story, but have some fun with completing some meaningful activities. So the parents get the benefit of seeing, oh, this is this is helping to support their educational pursuits in the classroom, but it's it's something that you know they can speak to and that they can relate to. They can see themselves in the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are also some fun things that they can do um, in the workbook as well. So there are four sections um, and 10 activities Per section for one, uh, for each of the books, each of the four books that are targeted. Hmm. Okay. And then I have a short story that I wrote um, called Arthur Mitchell and the Octopus, and so that's for um, a little bit older because my books typically are for our emerging, our early, our early readers. Mm-hmm. Arthur Mitchell is my first short story that I've written, and. Okay. So I, I really, I like the octopus. There's so much about the octopus that I just find fascinating, right? Um, so this little boy, he has to deal with his emotions. You know, he's a, he's a child that, you know, he holds it in and he's like, oh, but he's, you know, that kettle that wants to explode. What are the things that we can do to kind of bring ourselves back down and regulate how we feel, right? And how do we go about solving a problem that continues to present itself? over and over right and he even does something beyond what an adult would do because a lot of times um the reality is kids are handling their own problems sometimes Mm -hmm. a lot of times they're handling they're dealing with their own problems head on so equipping them with the strategies that they need to be able to do that so that's what that book kind of speaks to okay so you you get a lot out of doing these books i can see you have a lot of passion and excitement for for the writing that you're doing huh I do. I do. And I love one of the things I enjoy. I've always enjoyed doing and I still enjoy doing now is reading, reading books to children, especially like my little children. I enjoy 
reading stories with them and interacting about the content, not just my books, just books in general. I really enjoy you know, sharing in those moments. And I will say this, reading is a skill. And I know a lot of people know this, reading is a skill. When children are exposed to that early on in a consistent, meaningful, loving and engaging way, you're doing such a huge favor to them by setting the stage for learning. It opens up a lot down the line in terms of just so many options, um, having that as a basic fundamental foundation. So, uh, yeah, I know we both had that as part of our foundation, you know, going to the library every week, reading seven books and, and going through all the different uh, chapter books that we read, just finding our, um, using our imagination and being able to build our vocabulary in those, in those ways is, is really a, a great thing. I think that has contributed to both of us being where we are currently. So I, yeah. I wholeheartedly that Dewey Decimal System. Oh, <laughs> we put it to work. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right. So, um, how can people get copies of your book if they want to do that? And they should do that because they're good books. But how can people get copies of them? Thank you. Um, well, you can go to my website. Uh, it's www.beartasmith.com. I will spell that for you. It's www.beartasmith.com. And uh, I have a shop on my website where they can access any of those books. As well as my other book, which is a short story that gives a little bit of the background about why I became a children's book author. And that book is called The Woman with No Shoes. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. Why doesn't she have shoes? <laughs> okay. All right. And are you active on any social media and ways people can get in contact you with you in that format? I am um, on Instagram or on Facebook. They can look up 4LDCS. That's the number 4LDCS on Facebook or on Instagram. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. I'm very glad we were able to have this conversation. And I'm sure that a lot of people have been enlightened um, as to things to be aware of when it pertains to speech and um, issues that uh, children and, and well, anybody could have with speech. So thank you for providing this information in such a succinct and clear manner. And we look forward to continuing the dialogue and uh, follow up with other questions folks might have that they might be asking as we move forward. So thank you so much for your time and your energy. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, big brother. <laughs> so, as, as always, we are constantly putting forth knowledge and information to help you live your life fully and to align your actions and values so that you are um, living the life you want to be living. So, until next time, we will see you and continue to have a wonderful, wonderful 2021. Boy, this time is going by so fast already. 
2021 is almost over. So anyway, we will see you in our next uh, podcast. Peace and be blessed. In closing, I want to remind you to always be a critical thinker as it relates to your mental health and well-being. We always want to inspire you to consciously question your choices to ensure that you are doing those things that bring you happiness and fulfillment. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel and share the information with others who might benefit. Connect with us on Twitter at HeartMindHealer and visit our Facebook and Instagram pages at Alashe Center, A-L-A-S-E Center. Our website is Alashe.net, A-L-A-S-E.net. And feel free to contact us for any consultations or questions you might have. Things that I might be missing Running too fast to stop to listen It's time to step out on faith I gotta show